Hello, young African leaders. Welcome to the Yali Voices podcast, the home for the best stories from the Young African Leaders Initiative Network. My name is Sonia Christine Lawrence. I'm a 2019 Mandela Washington Fellow from Liberia, attending the Civic Leadership Institute at the Presidential Precinct in Virginia. Thank you for joining us. I am the founder and executive director of Agents of Positive Change, a non-governmental organization that works to empower young people by providing education for them. I'm also presenter of a career talk radio show that motivates, inspire, and encourage young people to choose careers based on their passion and based on their interests. Today, I'm with Melina Rastor, a 2019 Mandela Fellow from South Africa. Melina is an attorney with 12 years of experience in legal, governmental, and non-governmental sectors. She is the founder of the Women Lead Movement, an organization that promotes social empowerment initiatives in local communities and advocate for social and political change. Melina's commitment to social justice and gender equality have been recognized by several international organizations. She is an inaugural Obama Foundation leader in Africa, a future Africa Forum for Governance contributor, and a spokeswoman for the global campaign on gender equality by the One Foundation. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to Yali Voices podcast and visit yali.state.gov to stay up to date on things Yali. Welcome, Melina. I am very excited to be here with you today, Sunny. Thank you very much for having me on this podcast. Thank you, too, for making yourself available to be part of this podcast. Kindly, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What was it like growing up? And you can also talk about the passion that you have (laughs) for advocacy for women. Thank you very much. Uh, so I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa. And unfortunately, and it's one of the things that we still, you know, challenging in South Africa, I am considered a mixed race or a colored, which is part of the minority people in South Africa. And obviously, as we would know, you know, minorities don't always have, uh, they have the same rights, but they're not given equal uh, recognition as some of the other more, you know, majority groups within South Africa in itself. So the context in which I grew up was the following. It was an impoverished community, high unemployment. Um, You know, there was a lot of abuse of women in particular and children that took place. Gang violence, very rife. So in terms of the context, that was sort of my background. I also grew up in a single parent household. And it's very important that I mention this because the reason why I ultimately become a gender activist is because of the examples that my mom would set in my childhood growing up as well. So as I mentioned, she was a single parent, she was an educator, but she was also a community worker. She used to work a lot with abused children and women within the community in itself. And I can never recall one situation or incident where my sister and my mom and I were alone because my mom always used to have these women and their children living with us. Uh, Whether it's women that was running away from their husbands because they were abused or children that was raped within the family. There was even, you know, girls that was living with us that had HIV because of the molestation and the sexual violence that was perpetrated against them. So, you know, as a 9, 10, 11 year old girl growing up, that was my reality. And I think that later sort of uh, motivated me to go into this particular direction, though it was never my intention to start an NGO and to do work on gender equality. I think that 
my experiences collectively has led me down this path. And I don't think that I would want to do anything different to what I'm doing now. Wow. And uh, you talk about the fact that your mother actually made that really the biggest impact in your life. Uh, can you just tell me what specific, uh, what was her service or kind of, what, what, what were those uh, characteristics she had that actually kind of impacted you the most when it comes to her work? Two things. She had humility. And that was the first lesson she taught me. She said, it doesn't matter who you are, what you have. You should be humble. You should have compassion. That was the second thing for people. Whether or not they are like you, whether they have what you have, you need to have that kind of compassion, that love and that care for your neighbor. And those two were fundamental. Obviously, education, she believed in education as the primary. But in terms of the kind of qualities that I should have as an individual was to have humility and to be compassionate. So I did my law degree and then I went to practice and I realized that I actually didn't like practicing law. But during my time studying law, I fell in love with a particular aspect of the law and that was the constitutional law and human rights law. And suddenly this passion for laws, just, you know, specifically human rights law started to grow. And I really started internalizing it as well. Then the second level of my experience was going to the constitutional court. And there sort of my passion for human rights and the constitution really deepened because there I worked with cases, real-life cases of people, communities, where their human rights are being violated. At this point, I wasn't fighting for gender equality. I was really looking at human rights very broadly, you know, looking at our constitution and the rights that is afforded for all people in South Africa, what is being done and what is not being done. During my time at the Constitutional Court of South Africa, I think that was one of the most profound experiences in my life because my passion that I developed at University for Human Rights deepened because there I worked with some of the most profound judges, you know, in South Africa in itself, and I worked on very profound cases. I did the research mostly and wrote little opinions for the judges, but there I sort of really understood what human rights was all about, the bigger picture issues. And when I left the sort of legal space, and that was in 2010, I worked in national government. And I was very young at the time. And I thought, obviously, you know, politics has also been something that I enjoyed. It wasn't necessarily something that I studied, but I sort of become an accidental politician by working with some very senior political leaders like former President Jacob Zuma. I was also as an advisor to uh, two of the cabinet ministers. And I thought that that was going to be it for me in terms of my experience. And this is where I want to work and, um, you know, really bring my contributions in this space. But it wasn't like that. Not that all my experience in government was negative, but my experience in the government taught me how things should not be done. And it was there where I realized that, you know, the voice of society, of the people was being oppressed. They were not being heard. You know, laws were being made at national government level that people on the ground did not really understand how it would be implemented and what effect it would have on their lives. There's a narrative that says that if you really want to change, you need to work for government because you need to change from the inside. But I actually didn't think of it in that way at all. I actually saw the role of the citizen, the people outside of government, influencing the government and how decisions are being taken and how policies are being designed and how policies are being implemented by mostly the influence of the public. And I wanted to be part of that space. And then obviously coupled with the fact that I was always either the youngest in those positions, because it was very senior positions, 
very little females that used to assume those positions. So I was always sort of the minority. Okay. In each but, and every but, context. But also, did you also felt somehow, um, I don't want to use this word, kind of intimidated by the fact that you were like the youngest to be part in that kind of decision making or in that, by that level, did you have any sort of feeling while serving that position? I think at first I was, but I felt more irritated because I was educated. I didn't feel that my age should count. I felt that I had something to contribute. I felt that I had the work ethic to really drive change if given the opportunity at the table, to sit down at the table with these political men to also add my voice. But I was not given that opportunity. And so I was irritated more than, what was the word that you used? Uh, intimidated? Yes. And I thought to myself, you know, how many other women, not only in government, in business, in civil society out there, feels exactly the same. They are educated, they are capacitated, they are capable, but they are not given the opportunities to raise their voice, to give an opinion, to drive change. And I thought, okay, if the system is not going to give me this opportunity, I'm going to create my own opportunity, not only for myself, but for the women that will be part of this movement. Exactly. And I honestly agree with you when it comes to women out there whose voices are not being heard, who feel really intimidated that men are in the power and it should just be men and we women should just be at the back. So um, what are you doing? Um, what kind of positive impact have your work had on your community? The fact that you're advocating for women and you want women voices to be heard and women should take leadership positions. Basically, how far or what impact so far have you been able to have on the lives of women there in South Africa, Cape Town specifically? Yeah, Cape Town, yes. So the intention really is not to only have it in Cape Town. We are moving now to the neighboring provinces of the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape within South Africa. And so the last two years, because I registered my company in 2017, so we've been active for two years. So I started the Women Lead Movement back in February 2017. So we are, we are a young organization, you know, and we're gaining momentum and it has been two years, but it has been a beautiful, uh, very uh, uh, inspiring two years. Our main idea for the Women Lead Movement was really to educate first. It was to educate communities. At that time, we weren't also excluding men and children from this education because everyone needs education on the Constitution, on the human rights, on the role and the function of the state and how to get involved in local government decision-making. Why? Because the politicians, after elections, they exclude the citizenry from decision-making processes. And we felt that it was wrong. If you claim to be a democratic country, you need to involve your citizens far beyond elections. Elections are not the only time when democracy is really, or you can say that your democracy is in action. It's not, because there's a representative arm of democracy and there's a participatory arm of democracy. What is happening within the participatory element? We realize that if people really wanted to participate effectively and really raise their voices effectively, they needed education. They needed some level of understanding as to how government operates, you know, how to infiltrate the systems, how to raise complaints, how to make suggestions, how to influence certain things. They didn't know. So we started off on that and there was a lot more women that used to come to these gatherings, to these meetings that we would have in the communities. I think the ratio would be 80-20 in favor of women. And then we realized these women wanted to do something more. They didn't want to only be educated. They wanted to move from education into action. What can we do now to effect change? 
you know. And so now we're starting to look at things like advocacy and campaigning and petitioning, you know, and making sure that women are represented. We focus grassroots level. We're focusing community because we believe that real change will happen at the community level. So part of our, our strategy, and I mean we're still evolving, is getting our women into seats of office at local government, whether it's the school governing board, because women have never been given really access and the opportunity to lead, not even in their families, because the men are the heads, you know, all that, not even the church. The pastor would always be a male, not even at local government. The local councillor will be male, mostly dominated by males. And what we are saying in the Women Lead movement is give women the opportunity to lead socially, to lead politically, and eventually they will lead economically. But it starts from the community level. I definitely agree with your aim and objective, especially when it comes to pushing uh, that gender equality. And back in Liberia is a kind of issue also we face back there when it comes to women not being in power in leadership positions. We have mostly men dominated. So basically, can you kindly, what was one of the hardest thing you have to do when it comes to overcoming because to change a society from the kind of notion of uh, men always being the lead, always taking leadership roles and kind of like educating the mindset of people out there about women into leadership. What, what has been the hardest part of your work and uh, your organization when it comes to that aspect of advocating, that aspect of uh, reaching out there and educating both the women and the men and children, the community at large? What have been your challenges? One of the things that I had to overcome, and I mean, this probably will sound as a surprise, but I think the biggest was overcoming myself, overcoming my mind. When you are born, you're born into a certain belief and value structure, you know, uh, or certain norms that you ascribe to. Um, and for me, I am one of those people that believe in self-introspection all the time, evaluating where I am, my progress, what biases do I still have? Because if I want to be an effective leader, I really need to get rid of any bias or any value that will derail me from the vision. My vision is not a Melina vision. My vision is for women. It's a woman's vision. It's, it's for gender equality. So I need to be very neutral in that space. I can't have, you know, dominant religious views and cultural views and this is how things should be. You know, I have to be open to listen to new ideas because the woman lead movement is evolving. My intention is not to be in the movement forever. Because that is also a challenge if you have one leader being in an organization for a very long time. Because you sort of, you know, infiltrate and, uh, you know, uh, have this toxic behavior of wanting to impose yourself and your own views and how you understand the world within the organization in itself. So you need to devoid yourself of all things that is biased that can influence your support. Because no leader is a leader without followers. You don't want to sort of, uh, you know, push people away because of your very strong views on certain things. You need to be open to that. And it was a long process for me because if I look back at the person I was 10 years ago, which wasn't a long time ago, but I felt I feel that it was quite a long journey already. I am no longer that person. I'm much more open. I think my experiences, mostly my defeats and most of the battles that I've lost, and I've lost more battles than anything else that influenced the person that I am today. So thank you so much for the positive step you're taking to transform lives and change 
the way of life when it comes to women in leadership and your struggle for that. And it's something that is, you know, not only for South Africa, it's all over Africa. And we are all with you. What advice can you give to Yali Network members out there when it comes to um, those who actually want to bring about positive change within their communities? Um, what can you say to them? Um, what are those things they need to focus on? There are many young um, leaders with great ideas who are part of this Yali Network and who really, really want to learn more from you. So what can you say to them? If I look at my own experience, the first thing that I did was look for people that shared my vision. And my team today are people that I knew from university, unlikely candidates, people that I didn't work with, some people I worked with. And so I wanted to collaborate. I wanted to get a whole bunch of us together. Everyone sharing the same vision and the same passion, and that's very important. Because if your team doesn't share the same vision and passion as you do, there's going to be serious issues. So get the right team. Be open to collaborate with others. That is why we are there. Um, if I can mention the experience that I had with the Obama Foundation last year, it was also leaders across Africa. We are a close-knitted family today, and that is exactly how I see the Yali Network operating as well. I have a sister in Liberia now. I have a brother in DRC now. All of us doing the same work. Why can't I go there and do voluntary work? Why can't my brother from Congo come to South Africa and share his expertise? Collaborating on projects together, applying for grant funding together. Africa, and that's what I realize, all have the same issues. Many countries in Africa, we have the same issues. We are not elite in our own little you know, space there. The issues that is faced in South Africa is faced in Liberia, it's faced in Angola and Botswana, everywhere. There's going to be many challenges. So they need to have substance. If you want to call yourself an expert on a particular topic or you want to do work in a particular area, you need to be educated. You need to know enough on the issue that you're working on to become an expert. How else are people going to respect you? How else are people going to listen to you? How else are you going to get followers? So read up as much as you possibly can on the work that you're doing. Because I tell you now, once you get on a platform and there's more people listening to you, we don't want you to be exposed to what you are not. You need to know your subject area very, very well. Be passionate. It's not always about the money because the biggest issue that I think I have with a lot of young leaders or yelly, you know, young leaders in Africa is that they always have this thing of, where's the money? We need money to do this. I understand that we need money to do this, but there are many other ways in which we can sort of, you know, fundraise or we don't always have to look at the government for funding. There are business, there are networks across the world that can invest in the work that you do, but don't let that be an obstacle. You know, the passion should speak for itself. There was a long time that I'm going to tell you now that I invested my own money in my work, money that I saved, because I believe in it. And if I don't invest in my own vision, why would someone else invest in my dream if I don't invest in it myself? So it's really about being a self-starter, you know, when sort of everything looks dark and depressing. What are you going to do to turn that around? The situation is never going to be a favorable one but you can make it favorable and it will take time. So be patient. That's a beautiful journey that evolves, it changes. The deeper you go, the more intense, the more depth you find within the work that you do. And I think for me, that was the case. I started off with human rights education and look where I am now. 
leading an apolitical movement that has the potential of becoming political in the next 10 years. Because what we do is we don't exclude women based on any basis, religion, culture, but it has the potential to grow exponentially, even when I am not there. And I won't be there forever. And I want people, obviously, to follow me when I leave and take over the reins and just carry the movement forward. So besides us being able to collaborate and working on amazing projects together and really making a bigger impact on the African continent than in our own countries, we are each other's biggest support, especially in difficult times, not only in the good times. Because the kind of work that we do goes against the grain of what many of our governments do not want to see happen. And so as young leaders, we also need to understand that we are a network, a support, an advisory network for one another, you know? So if you want advice on a particular thing that you think I have the expertise on, you should be able to freely email me or call me and let's have a discussion about it. How can I advise you better? That is how I see this, this Yelly network really working together, you know, collaborating, supporting, advising, um, you know, each other until we reached our goals. You know, Sunny, there isn't a magic formula for these things. But I would say as a very, very entry-level, you know, advice piece, start with community forums. You don't have to focus on women. But if there's no community forums, because really what we want to do is create an active and vibrant and participatory citizenry. How do you do that? You can't do it by only educating. You need to organize communities to action. Uh, because communities can be educated and not be organized or be educated and not be inspired to actually move from being educated into action. So it will be your responsibility to create these community forums where you are. Very small. It can start with 20, 30, 40, 50 people. It will automatically grow. The second piece of advice, listen to the, what the people want. Do not come with your views on how you think this forum should look or the kind of project they should do. Listen to what they want. The communities are more informed as to what they need than politicians or anyone else coming from the outside in to tell them what they need. So listen, engage people, find out what their passions are and what they're willing to do and what they can do. Because what we've learned with the Women Need Movement was that women always wanted to be actively involved. They just didn't know how to do it. They were sitting with the expertise at home. Some of them were retired. Some of them really wanted to uh, effect change. They just didn't know how to come together. So, Melina, can you, um, for women listening or audience, right, uh, those part of the Yali Network members, can you uh, kindly say out your website so that we can also follow? No problem. It's www.womanleadmovement.org. They can also follow us on Facebook, yes, and the Women Lead Movement. Be sure to come back for more inspiring stories from the young African leaders on the Yali Voices podcast. Join the Yali Network at yali.state.gov and be part of something bigger. Our team music is Ego Happen by Grace Jerry and produced by the Presidential Precinct. The Yali Voices podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Department of State and it is part of the Young African Leaders Initiative, which is founded by the U.S. government.